Father, we thank you so much for your presence with us tonight. And we worship you for being such a comfort all the time to us, that you've given us the Holy Spirit, who's always at our right hand to guide us, always there to lead us, always there to give us the word when we need it, always there to give us encouragement, consolation, edification, all these wonderful things that you provided by grace. Father, I just thank you that he is so wonderful indeed. The Holy Spirit in us is so wonderful. And Father, we thank you because his sole conversation is about the other person that we think is so wonderful, the Lord Jesus. And I thank you for the Lord because his, all his thoughts are about the wonderful Father in heaven. Father, and I thank you we have the benefit of three wonderful people. And Father, we can just pour ourselves out in love and adoration before them all. We just praise you, Lord, for being so glorious with us. And Father, we ask the anointing of your Holy Spirit upon us tonight. May we know your guidance, your convicting power, Father, tonight in a new way, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The subject of the Bible study tonight is the judgment of the believer. Before I begin on the subject, I want to make one principle very clear. And that is that our salvation is two-sided, is double. Our salvation has got two parts to it, and they're very distinct, and the distinction between them is very important. First of all, I'll define these. The first one is what I would call the kindred, the kindred relationship. I'll explain it in, in a moment. That's the first part of our relationship with the Lord. Secondly, we have what I would call fellowship. <clears throat> and these are fundamentally different. Now let's take the first before we begin. The kindred relationship. The moment you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the moment you personally accepted him as your saviour, well actually 34 things happened to you at that very instant. I'm not going to list them all tonight, but one of the glorious things that happened, and I don't mind if you put this as number one, is the fact that you became a child of God. If you're a man, you became a son of God. If you're a woman, you became a daughter of God. But it doesn't matter which, you become children of God. Now, the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you become part of the family of God. Now, that's what I mean by the kindred relationship. That's automatic. The moment you believe on the Lord, you become his son or his daughter. Um, we could see that. We've seen this so often, this lovely verse. Let's turn to it and read it together. Galatians 3.26. I think it's probably the verse I've used more than any other in the last series. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. Galatians 3 and 26. <clears throat> For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, can you remember a point in your life when you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? That means you're a child of God. Now, think about the relationship a bit. I think we've seen this when it came to eternal security. He's now your father. You're now his son or his daughter. And I'm afraid, do what you want. You can't get out of that relationship. Isn't that a wonderful thing to know? Uh, many of us, let's take it in the natural and see it again, many of us have not wanted to have the father that we had. We were rather lumbered when it came to our fathers. And we'd love to have swapped our particular father. Perhaps I'm not talking about you. Perhaps your father's the greatest dad in the world, as I've heard on the radio uh, so often. Um, there's nothing you can do about it. 
Whoever your father is, whether he's good, bad, indifferent, he's your father and you're stuck with him. You can actually deny that he's your father, but the truth is, he is your father. You can deny you're his son, but you are. You can change your name, you can change your looks, you can change everything. You might be the splitting image of your father, and because you loathe it so much, you have your whole face changed, but you're still your father's son. Praise God. Now that's what I mean by kindred relationship. And the same is true with our Father in Heaven. Once you are born again, you are born into the family of God. And there's absolutely nothing that can get you out of it. Praise God. He may not like you very much, for certain reasons, sin or undealt with areas in your life, but he's still your Father and he's going to stick by you. Praise God. Now that's what I mean by kindred relationship. And you're in it and you're firm in it. It's secure. Nothing can break the kindred relationship we have with the Father. But that's not true of the second part of our salvation. The fellowship part of our salvation. If we take the father and son analogy, we get it to perfection. You may be your father's son, but you may not have seen him for three years because you really don't get on very well with him. Now, that's what I mean by fellowship. The fellowship's broken if you don't get on well with your father. The fellowship's broken if you don't get on well with your son. You see? For example, I remember so often when I was a child, uh, I used to have a, there used to be a massive argument. I was stopped doing what I wanted to do. It was a non-Christian home, needless to say. Uh, I was stopped doing what I wanted to do. And so immediately I just stormed out of the room. And I would sit upstairs, really regretting it, because the television was downstairs, the food was downstairs, <laughs> the people I loved were downstairs, but there was I upstairs, and I wasn't going to budge. You see, the fellowship's broken. Now, it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm my father's son. I still was. Sometimes he regretted it, undoubtedly. <laughs> but our fellowship was interrupted. I don't know about you, but uh, for me, the, the saddest... Uh, thing on the radio are these SOS messages. Do you, have you heard them before the six o'clock news? I found them terribly sad. The type of thing, uh, and here are the SOS messages, would so-and-so and so-and-so, last heard of eight years ago at Wandsworth, say, please contact so-and-so Cottage Hospital where their father, so-and-so and so-and-so, is dangerously ill. It's amazing how we can just listen to it and forget what it means. It means that someone somewhere has got a father and they haven't seen them for at least eight years. They haven't contacted them, they haven't given their address, or anything like that. Now, do you see, that exactly demonstrates the kindred relationship still there. They're still father and son. But the fellowship has been interrupted. And when we come on to the judgment of the believer, it's to do with the fellowship of the believer that we are concerned not with the kindred relationship alright now there's a firm difference b between them I think uh, the difference between these is best seen in a passage of scripture if we could turn to it uh, the gospel of John and chapter 13 the gospel of John <coughs> and chapter 13 <coughs> Actually, in an earlier Bible studies in this series, I did actually give you this passage to look up yourselves. So I hope you are convicted, or perhaps you're not convicted, of the fact that you've followed up the Bible study, or you haven't followed up the Bible study. And uh, we'll begin verse 4 of the Gospel of John, chapter 13. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. <clears throat> verse 4. 
and here's Jesus. Now, you imagine the room, that they're, they're taking this feast together, and they are actually lying out on couches in the room. And all their heads were pointing inwards. They had their feet at the other end. And it says here, He riseth from supper, and laid aside his garments. This is the Lord Jesus. And took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. In the ancient days, before they went out, they had a bath. Then they used to walk with their sandals on through the dusty streets, and by the time they came to their neighbor's house or their friend's house, their feet used to be dusty. So they always washed their feet at some time during their stay, just to get the dust off. You see, now here's the Lord, the Lord himself, the Lord of glory, he whose home is naturally heaven, is picking up a bowl of water and he's going to wash the disciples' feet. Have you ever done that to someone else? Really, the thought is quite revolting, actually. But the Lord so loved these men, he just didn't mind at all. He was going to deal with something much more revolting than feet. He was going to deal with their sin. And this was nothing. And so imagine Jesus standing up. He takes this towel and he takes the water and he goes round to the disciples. We don't know where he started, but he came to one particular disciple. I love Simon Peter very much. I'm, uh, when you read the letters at the end, 1 and 2 Peter, what a man. He'd learnt so much in his long life. Well, here he comes. Right, verse 6. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And that's quite a natural reaction, isn't it? And here in the Greek, it's almost clear, he withdraws his feet. Lord, I'm not... No, you're not going to wash my feet. Lord, what, he, what do you think you're doing? Washing my feet. It's um, a natural reaction, but it's not a right reaction. Sometimes we see this in the spirit, when people feel that they should give to God, but they never expect to receive anything from God. And believe it or not, the Lord really does love washing our feet as well. That's why in the meetings, oh yes, I go to the meetings to pour myself out to God. Not to receive from Him, to pour out. But I receive as much as I give any day. In fact, I receive more. He's such a generous giver. He's so lovely. Well, there's nothing unspiritual about leaving your feet out for Jesus to wash them. He wants to do it because he loves you so much. But Peter, indignant, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And he repeats it, um, <coughs> actually, well, later on. Verse 7, Jesus answered, said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know Hereafter. Now, what he's saying to Peter is, look, Peter, there's something of great importance in this. You don't know it now, but you're going to know it later. And the word know there, the second word know, is a different word from the first word to know. The, the second word know there means to learn by experience. To learn by experience. So he's saying, Peter, what I'm doing to you, you will learn by experience later on. Now let's read on. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. You're not going to, and it's a double negative in the Greek. You are not, not going to wash my feet. I refuse to let you. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part 
with me. Now this is an amazing truth. And all Jesus is stating is this, funnily enough. It's salvation, this point. He's saying, for you to be saved, you need to be washed by the Holy Spirit. For you to be part of my body, the Holy Spirit has got to take you and has got to wash you. Let's uh, keep the fi our finger in the place and turn to Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. <clears throat> Titus 3 and verse 5. Alright, where we get it actually. And I'll begin verse 4. But after that the, the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, you can't earn your salvation, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now the word regeneration there means to be born again. And Jesus in John chapter 3 said, unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's Jesus, and he's saying to Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me at all. None whatsoever. I think this is tremendously gracious, gracious to Judas. I believe he's preaching the gospel here to Judas. He never let, let off on that man. All was preaching the gospel. Right? Now, it, it's the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, you've got another verse, if we turn to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. There it is. By one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. Now what's that mean? It means the moment you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit came and he put you into the body of Christ. Baptism there, of course, means this identification with the person of the Lord Jesus. And that's the job. That's another thing that happens at salvation. The very moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit takes you and he puts you into the body of Christ and you can't get out. That's the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. There it is. So when he said to Peter, unless I wash you, you've got no part in me, that's the gospel being preached. All right. Okay. <clears throat> Next, and by the way, it's uh, if there's third class condition. If, perhaps you will, perhaps you won't. And he was saying it to us, to every person who might hear this message. Perhaps you will let Jesus wash you. Then you'll be saved. You'll have eternal life. You'll be a member of the body of Christ. But perhaps you won't. And there remains the prospect of judgment if you do not. Right, now Simon Peter. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Oh, dear Peter, impetuous to the last. Notice this, in verse 6, he takes his feet away and says, Lord, washing my feet's too much. Now in verse 9, washing my feet's not enough. Now that's an impetuous man, you see. It's too much, one verse, three verses later, not enough. Lord, not just my feet, my head, my hands, he's implying he wants him all washed. Lord, everything, not just the feet, everything, Lord. Impetuosity can be a good thing in the world. It's a very bad thing for Christians. It leads you into a lot of problems. It really does. You learn to, uh, to regret impetuosity after a while. It makes you say things that you regret. It makes you say, make decisions that you regret. As Peter 
knows. Now, if you are an impetuous person, do read up on Peter. But don't give up hope. Go into Acts and see what Peter became. If you're an impetuous person, God can really use you when he sorted it out. All right. Now then, here we come on. The Lord now develops it. Jesus saith unto him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. Now, the first one, he that is washed, passive. You can't wash yourself. The moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are washed by him. And he's saying, the moment you're saved, you're clean. All right? You don't need to wash again. You're perfectly and absolutely clean. And it means you don't have to be saved again when you've been saved once. You are washed once and for all. Only the feet have got to be washed. Only the feet. What does that mean? It means that the kindred relationship is fine. But the fellowship is the feet. It's your walk with God and it needs constant washing. All the time it needs washing and washing and re-washing. All the time. Right? And this is the tremendous truth. Now Peter didn't understand it. He was going to learn it because he was going to be out of fellowship so much. You see? And by getting into fellowship, he'd soon learn what this truth was all about. But that's what Jesus meant. And then he goes on, and ye are clean, but not all. He says, eleven of you are clean. Eleven of you have believed on me and are born again. Eleven of you are in kindred relationship with me. But there's one among you who's not. And it's Judas. He's preaching the gospel to this man Judas. That's very gracious of the Lord. And it says, verse 11, For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and had taken the, his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord. Ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If, and you do, if ye know these things, happy are ye, if, perhaps you will, perhaps you won't, you do them. There we are. Isn't it a tragedy that in the church, in the body of Christ today, we don't spend more time washing one another's feet? Yeah? What do we do? We gaze at the corns. We gaze at the blemishes. We, gla we gaze at everything that's wrong. And we say, dear, if I have feet like that, boy, I'd get something done about it. The Lord didn't do it. The Lord went round washing, washing the disciples' feet. Washing the disciples' feet. That's our responsibility. If he did it, if he did it, we've got to do it. And notice, by the way, in the meetings, he comes along and he blesses you. No matter what you're like, he pours you. Sometimes you see someone being blessed and you say, Lord, they should never be blessed. <laughs> and that's true. But by grace, the Lord Jesus comes and he washes and washes and washes again. Uh, a, a verse just comes into my mind. I wonder if I could share it with you. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24... Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24. There are some real gems hidden away in the Bible. Alright? Here we are, 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love. To provoke unto love. 
and good works, it says, but I can't get past that first one. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love. Now, when we talk about provoke, we mean deliberately niggling someone, deliberately getting under their skins. And here it says, if you've got to provoke, provoke to love. Now, I wonder what you provoke. You know, all of us have an effect on one another. When we're together, what do you provoke in someone else? Do you provoke envy? Jealousy? Criticism? What is it that you provoke? Oh, it should be love. You should walk into a room and your very presence gets under someone's skin and they can't help but love you. What about that? Now that's provoking to love. That's what the Lord Jesus is doing. That's what we should be. You know how sometimes you go to someone and you can't help gossiping. You didn't mean to gossip. It just comes out. They provoke it in you. You know? Or, you, or you're provoked into something else. Oh, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit to such a degree that you're provoked to love. Now that's something... And everywhere you go, oh, hallelujah. And people say, I just love him more since you walked in this door. You provoke me to love. And by the way, parents, provoke your children to love. Amen. It says provoke not your children, but you can provoke them to love. It's a very good thing to do. <laughs> Praise God. But you see the point that I'm dealing with. Fellowship here is broken. It needs constant washing constant renewing with the Holy Spirit all the time, right? Now, the kindred relationship cannot be broken. Never. Your sins were taken on the cross. The moment you believed, the moment you believed, you recognized that Jesus had died for your sins. On the cross, Jesus took your sins, they were judged and found guilty. And God paid in full for your sins. The Lord Jesus Christ paid in full. We call that expiation. He paid in full. Now, if Christ paid in full for your sins, that means that you can't pay for them. So, if we're talking about the first one, the kindred relationship, there's no judgment. Absolutely none. The Bible says, when there's death, then there comes the fearful prospect of judgment, but not for the believer. No believer will ever be judged for his sins. They've already been judged on the cross 2,000 years ago. And once they've been judged and paid for, they won't have to be paid for again. So in kindred relationship, there's no judgment for the believer after death. Absolutely none. Let's see three passages on that. First of all, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And the word condemnation is judgment. There is therefore now no judgment for those in Christ Jesus. No judgment at all. The next one is John 3 and 18. John 3, 18. John 3, 18. Now here it is. He that believeth on him the Lord Jesus, is not condemned, not judged. But he that believeth not is judged already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The one I love more than anyone else, any other passage, is John 5 and 24. And we've seen this before, I think, in the first Bible study of this series. <clears throat> Verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, and that's the word, Amen, Amen. So be it, so be it. This is true, what I'm telling you now. 
That's what Jesus is saying. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death unto life. Now there it is. If you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be judged for your sins. You will not. They've already been judged. He died, he paid the penalty in full. And if it's paid, you're free. You don't have to pay. Glory to Jesus. Fine, that's one. But number two is different. When we've seen the kindred relationship, when we come onto the fellowship, we see that actually there is judgment for the believer as far as fellowship is concerned. Now by fellowship I mean our relationship with the Father which is supposed to be a constant relationship with the Father. There is judgment. It's not in the future after death. It's right now in this life. Judgment now. That's the bad news. Let's see the good news first. Uh, turn with me, please, to the passage, and we'll be in this passage a fair amount tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm taking verse 31, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 31. And we'll be returning to this time and time again. For if we, should, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Now that does not refer to future judgment, it refers to judgment when fellowship is broken off. If you would judge yourself, you would not be judged. And so, the judgment of, of the believer is self-judgment. I said self-judgment, not judgment of one another. You have no place at all to judge another brother or sister. Absolutely none. It's self-judgment. You've got to look at yourself. Now notice where this verse comes. It comes at the end of a very lengthy passage. If you know anything about the Corinthian church, you know that there's probably not a church like it around today. Any wrong you can think of, they were doing it. Right? You think of the worst thing you can think of, the Corinthians were bound to be doing it. And Paul's writing to this church, and they were having a fine old time doing exactly what they wanted. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, right up to this point, he's been listing all the things that they're wrong. You're wrong on this. You've done this. I hear this. This is the report I get from that place. This is the report I get from that. And I believe it, he says. And so when he comes down to the end, what's he say? He says, if you would judge yourselves, you would not be judged. And the if there is very important. It's number two. If, and you're not doing it. You are not judging yourselves. I wish you were, actually. You are not judging yourselves. If, we, if you would judge yourself, you would not be judged. That's what he's saying. Right? They had not taken these things on as sin. They had explained them away. You see? This was the stark reality that they were doing wrong in God's sight, and they wouldn't have it. They were going on their merry way. And Paul, with all fear and trepidation, picks up his pen and he writes this scorcher of a letter to them. But he ends on this marvellous note. 
or ends the bit in which he's tearing them apart on this note. Judge yourselves. Judge yourselves. Judge yourselves. And it leads me to this point. <clears throat> You've got to be harsher with yourself than anyone else is as far as sin is concerned. Don't allow any sin in your life. Don't allow any sin in your life that isn't judged. Don't. Don't put up with it. Don't have it. Other people may not know about it, but he knows about it. You see? As soon as you see it there, get it clear. Now, how do we judge ourselves? It's your responsibility to do it, so you better know how to do it. Well, <clears throat> it's our old friend, and perhaps overused friend sometimes, or too glibly used, 1 John 1 9. Could we turn to 1 John 1 9 and have a fresh look at it? 1 John 1 9. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, the if there is, perhaps you will, perhaps you won't. And believer, you must make sure it's, yes, I will confess my sins. Right? No if about it, really. You must. If you don't, I wouldn't be in your shoes, as we're going to see uh, in just a moment. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, what about this word confess? We've had this before. I'm going to repeat it. Homologio. H-O-M-O-L-O-G-E-O. Homologio. There it is. Now, this word means to say the same thing as someone else. So that two of you are saying the same thing. And what it means is this, God loathes sin. And he's saying to you, I loathe that sin. If you confess it, you are saying, God, I loathe that sin too. God, I confess it's a sin. God, I come into line with what you've got to say about it. I confess it, it's the same as you've said. That means that when we see sin in our lives... We see the implications as far as we are concerned. And we see that it's doing damage, great hardship to a loving, wonderful, holy God. And we abhor it even as he does. It means coming into line and saying the same thing about something. That's what the word confess means. But it's a bit more. Because in its tense, its present tense... It's actually present subjunctive, but we've had the subjunctive in the if. Present subjunctive tense. <clears throat> now the present tense is what we call a continuous tense. It goes on and on and on. So this says, confess and confess and confess and confess and confess. And it means a bit more than that. It means that in every spiritual believer, there needs to be a heart ever eager for the Holy Spirit to reveal what's wrong. And ever eager to say, Amen, it's wrong, Lord, deal with it. And I mean eager. I do, I mean the word eager. So that you are not afraid for God's Holy Spirit to shine in. Whatever God reveals in your heart, you'll say, Lord, yes, I confess it, Lord. Deal with it, Lord, deal with it. That's what the word homologio here means to say the same thing about present tense, carry on doing it. Every Christian should be in that constant state of being prepared to face up to sin in their lives. 
as I've said, we've got to be harsher with ourselves than anyone else can be. If you are, you'll never get someone who actually trips you up. They'll say, brother, I think this is wrong in your life. And you say, I've been confessing that for months. Will you pray with me? And ask God to deal with it. Hallelujah. Confession, constant confession. And notice it's constant confession. Which means it doesn't matter if you have to confess and confess and confess and confess. It's saying do it. Just make sure you're in fellowship. Now this is judging yourself. And I don't mean a flippant, oh, 1 John 1, 9. It means saying, Lord, that thing in me is sin and I ask you to deal with it. That's what it means. Actually, there's only one way to deal with sin in a Christian's life. There's only one way. I can speak from personal experience. There's only one way that sin is neutralized in one's life. And that's an every second reliance upon the Holy Spirit. To be in fellowship with God to such a degree that you can't bear this love relationship to be shattered. And do you know, it's amazing. I fought against certain sins in my life for years and years and years. And then I fell in love with Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, it did what I could never do. Because I enjoyed my fellowship with the Lord so much that when I got out of fellowship, I couldn't bear it. I just couldn't bear it. And I was desperate, Lord, get me back into fellowship. And we have to do this constantly. Every day, don't we? I do. All of us do. The old sin nature is still there. Constantly confessing our sin. Now that's self-judgment. And look what it says. If you judge yourself, God won't judge you. Amen. Hallelujah. That's good news, isn't it? And it's in your hands. If you will judge yourself, he will not judge. He wipes the slate clean. Notice what it says. He, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There we are. All right? Now, Amos 3.3 3 says, Do two walk together unless they have an agreement. Do they? Of course they don't. You need agreement. God cannot walk in the dark with a believer. Because God's light. And if you're trying to walk in the dark, you cannot be in agreement with God. Your fellowship is cut off. Neither can God walk in full fellowship with a believer if a believer is calling white black and black white. It's only when the believer comes into line with God and says, Okay God, white's white and black's black. Amen. And fellowship is then restored. Praise God. Now that's what homologio means. To confess your sin. Glory to Jesus. Now that's it. Uh, the, the, a Christian's heart should always be what David described in Psalm 51, 17. If we could just quickly look at that. <clears throat> Psalm 51, 17. Psalm 51, 17. <clears throat> the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Not a proud heart, not a heart that is self-righteously vindicating itself, but a heart that will say, God, it's true. Everything you say about me is true. And I'm sorry, Lord. I don't want it like that. Please, by your spirit, Enable me to walk so that I do not walk in sin. It's a contrite and a broken heart. You'll never find a person with a contrite or broken heart criticizing sins in other believers. They're too conscious of their own sins. Sometimes you have to do it if it 
you can see it's out of line, but it breaks you up inside to have to do it, because you know that there, by the grace of God, go I. Hallelujah. Now that's what actually this means, to be in a constant place where you are prepared to face up to sin and to have it dealt with by God. Alright? Okay, but say you don't. Say you don't. Say you decide, I'm not going to judge myself. There are certain sins I do not recognize as sins. I will not have that they are sins. And I refuse to bow the knee. Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Because this is a fearful subject that we're broaching. 1 Corinthians 11. And 31. Now we're on to 32. I'll read 31 again. But if, and you're not, he says, if we would judge our sins, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, now there's a case in which someone has not judged themselves, they've refused. And here it's the whole Corinthian church who hasn't judged itself. When we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. And now we come onto the subject of the Father's discipline. You see, the father's the best disciplinarian in the world. He's written rules out in the Bible on how to bring up children and discipline them. And they're pretty tough. For us, we have to get in line with the word of God, no matter what our education and the world has said to us. Because he's the perfect man. He designed a child. He knows how to bring it up. But being a perfect father, that's exactly how he's going to discipline you as well if you get out of fellowship, or if you do not judge yourself. Now, I find this, that people who are moving in the spirit, to coin a phrase, don't like talking about discipline much. They like to over-spiritualize everything, instead of facing up to the nitty-gritty of what sin is, and getting sin dealt with in the life. And it's possible to over-spiritualize it. But God disciplines. And the Bible states it very clearly. And whether people you know, who are very spiritual never talk about it, the Bible does, and God does. And it happens. It's truth. Hallelujah. And we've got to deal with it. It says here that we are chastened of the Lord. Chastened of the Lord. There it is. Now, he's a father, and the word chastened there means to train children. It does not mean to punish them. doesn't. The chastening of the Lord is to train you, not to punish you for the sin. Jesus has been punished for the sin. All he wants to do is to train you on how to confess your sin. It's almost like the little child who will not confess that they have made the mess on the floor. And a wise father will make sure that that child soon learns to face up and to tell the truth about what they've done. And God doesn't want us hiding sin as believers. He wants it confessed. He wants it out. He knows all about it. He wants you to know all about it and you to confess it before him. All right? But it's a family affair. It's father as opposed to son. Now, you know where I'm going to turn now? To my favorite passage that deals with family discipline. Zechariah chapter 3. Now, this is a wonderful one. Praise the Lord. Zechariah chapter 3. While you're finding that, next week I'll be dealing with the judgment of believers' works, which does occur after death. But uh, that's not judgment of the believers, it's their works. And there is a separate, <coughs> they're two separate things. Right, Zechariah chapter 3. Now, to introduce the passage, we're in a courtroom, alright? This courtroom, probably somewhere in heaven. 
Right, it's at the time that the Jews are back in the land after the Babylonian captivity. They've been away for 70 years. They've been back in the land and they've built the temple. There it is, they've built the temple and it's finished. And they see it perfectly. Now, Satan has opposed the building of the temple. He didn't want it built. He didn't want it finished. But the Holy Ghost has enabled them to do it. Right, Satan has lost that battle. So what's he going to try and do now? He says this... If they've managed to finish the temple, I'm going to make sure the temple can't be used. Every temple needs a high priest. So if I can destroy the high priest, the temple can't be used. So now, Satan, having lost one battle, he's going to turn up and start his second battle against a certain man called Joshua. Here he is, Joshua. Joshua is not the Joshua of earlier on in the Bible of course, that settled the land and so on. Nothing to do with it. He's high priest at this time after the Babylonian captivity, at the time that Zerubbabel was actually the political leader. And you know the major attack that Satan's going to make? He's going to say, how can this man serve you, God, when he's a sinner? Now the answer we know, the answer is grace. By grace he can do it. That's right, by grace he can do it. You see, none of us earns or deserves to serve the Lord. Do you think that we, we really, you know, we're good and God says, oh, well, because you've been so good, I'll let you do it. Not at all. It's simply grace. That means none of us can get proud over our ministries or over anything else. It's grace. We don't earn it. We can't deserve it. All we've got to do is remain humble before God or we'll lose our ministry. Now, that's, that's right. And here's Joshua. Now, here's the courtroom. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, who's the angel of the Lord? It's the Lord Jesus. And these, uh, wherever you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, or more accurately, the angel of Jehovah, it's the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. <coughs> we call these Christophanies, the appearances of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, C-H-R-I-S-T-O... P-H-E-N-Y. Christophany is an appearance of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, the Lord Jesus is judge. He's sitting on the bench. All right? Praise the Lord. Who's the prosecution? Well, Satan is. The word Shatan, from which we get the word Satan, Shatan, S-H-A-T-A-N, is actually the word to accuse. So he's the accuser. All right, he's got, he's got a full dossier on all the sins that he knows about that Joshua has actually committed. Actually, he committed many more sins than Satan knew about. And Jesus knew all about those. He knew about them because he was going to die for them, right, just 500 years later or whatever. Right, so there we are. We've got two people. The judge is on the bench. The, the prosecution attorney has turned up, and that's Satan. And... Before the angel of the, the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. The word resist there is to Satanize him. It's the word Satan again. There's Satan, and he's doing what his character always does. Praise the Lord. Um, who's going to be the defense lawyer, by the way? Well, we know that, don't we, from 1 John 2. Keep your finger in the place. Let's just have a look at 1 John and chapter 2. It's a little unfair, this courtroom, uh, but unfair on the good side. Praise God. Because the defense lawyer is the judge. The Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's wonderful.
And in 1 John 2, verse 1, My little children, says John, he's an old man as he's writing this, These things wrote I unto you, that ye sin not. I believe it. I believe it. Hallelujah. Now, John didn't like holier-than-thou Christians. He couldn't bear them. We know that from uh, verse 8 of, cha of chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is in us. We've always got the old sin nature inside of us. Always. And it's always capable of producing sin. But I believe that you can reach a place where you're so in tune with the Holy Spirit that it's alien for you to sin. Because you can't bear having that love relationship blotted out. It doesn't mean sinless perfection. But I write these things unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, and if is, perhaps you will, perhaps you won't. Now that's significant. You see, because if you had to sin, it would be number one there. If and you will. Oh, hallelujah. I want to get to that place, don't you? Where you're so moving in God, it's just natural to be in tune with the Father. Amen. Hallelujah. Right, he says, I, I'm writing this to you because I don't want you to sin. But if you do sin, he says, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And an advocate's a lawyer. We've got a defense lawyer to fight for us. It's the Lord Jesus. And in heaven today, the Lord Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God and he's defending you. Praise God. That means you don't have to defend yourself. Praise God. I, I found a position of peace so deep since I've stopped defending myself. And I can just trust the Lord. It's so wonderful. Hallelujah. So the Lord Jesus is representing you before God. By the way, the Holy Spirit is the defense attorney for God on this earth. You see, God needs someone to represent him. And the Holy Spirit's here. You see, hallelujah. That's a different side to the coin, actually. And when uh, non-Christians and so on are blaspheming against God, the Holy Spirit's there. And he's saying, he's lovely. He's lovely. You need to know him. You need salvation. You need Christ in your life. And the Holy Spirit's the defense attorney for God on this earth. But Jesus is our defense attorney in heaven. Hallelujah. Right, now we've got the courtroom. So let's go back to Zechariah chapter 3. Right, <clears throat> and the case begins, and the first thing that happens is the judge speaks. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee. The Lord rebuke thee is the Lord is God the Father. It's a proof of the uh, Trinity here. God the Father rebuke thee, O Satan. The first thing that happens is that the judge dismisses the defense. That's the, sorry, the judge dismisses the prosecution, the tournay. So Satan is removed from the court. He says, Satan, go away. I won't have it. The Satan hasn't begun yet. He's all there with his papers, with every sin that's ever been committed. And he's kicked out of court. Why? Why is he kicked out of court? Because Joshua happens to be a believer. He's a member of the family. And if you have any trouble in the family, it's a family matter and has nothing to do with outsiders. And Satan's an outsider. So the first thing God does... He kicks Satan out. Praise God. Glory to Jesus. Now there it is. It's a family matter. And sin in your life is a family matter. It's between the Father and yourself. And I warn you, he's a disciplinarian. A very good one too. 
Praise God. And a loving one. Oh, amen. Such a loving one. Right, now notice what he says. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? That's grace. This is a brand and I've taken him out of the fire. I've rescued him. He didn't do it. I did it. Because he believed on me. That's grace. So he says it's a family matter. So what are you doing here, Satan? You're not a member of the family. Now, wouldn't it be ridiculous in a normal course of events if, when your son did something wrong, you called in the police? You know, and there's this uh, four-year-old boy, and all he's done is dropped his porridge, and in come the police. <laughs> well, the father's just the same. He deals with his own children. He doesn't call in Satan. You see? He's got nothing to do with outsiders. There is a point with us that came up quite recently. 1 Corinthians 6 is clear that we, because we belong to the family of God, must never take one another to court. It's a family matter. If you've got a disagreement with someone, don't you dare take them to court. You're, uh, you'll be out of fellowship immediately and under discipline. Because it's a family matter. You see, you know the passage, don't you? It says it's a shame. And who? It's 1 Corinthians, by the way, again. They were doing it. <laughs> oh, amen. It's a family matter. And we must never do it. Anyone who does it do does not understand these principles, does not understand grace, does not understand selflessness, does not understand this marvellous principle of the family of God. <coughs> Hallelujah. Well, let's just see what happened. <clears throat> now, Joshua was, was clothed with filthy garments. They're his sins. Filthy there is actually vomit-filled garments. You imagine the vomit all over his garments. That's what sin is to God. Do you believe it? Amen, Lord, I do. Amen. And he stood before the angel of the Lord, that is, that's Jesus. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And I said... And this is Zechariah speaking. He interrupts this. Zechariah gets so excited because he knows what it means. He says, Oh Lord, let them set a fair mitre upon his head. The mitre was a blue turban with a gold crown in the centre. And it had a band. And on the band was written, Holiness unto the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. Here was Joshua. He'd come to the Lord for defence. He said, Lord, I'm a sinner. That's why I've come. And so the Lord has clothed him with fresh garments and this lovely mitre. Have you got your mitre on tonight? Holiness unto the Lord, written all round your forehead. Right. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Praise God. And the word stood by there means he approved of it. The angel of the Lord, the Lord he approved of everything that was happening. Praise God. Now you see what this passage shows. Discipline is a family matter. And when we're talking about fellowship being interrupted, the Father moves in. It's a family matter and he will discipline, definitely. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Alright, let's see the pattern. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, and again verse 32. Now, the pattern is this. <clears throat> when you have sinned and committed some sin, often there's a period of time in which God graciously 
is waiting for you to confess that sin. Now some believers think that just because God's waited, he hasn't seen the sin, or he's forgotten about it. I hope there's no one in this fellowship could ever think something like that. The Father is waiting in grace for you to confess your sin. If you don't, then the Father starts disciplining. Alright? If you don't, then the Father starts disciplining. And it is to train us to get us into this place of constant confessing and confession before the Lord. And when you're a young child, he'll discipline you differently than if you're an older child. All right? If you've committed a sin and he's disciplined you and you haven't listened, the discipline gradually gets harder and harder and harder. And it's important, this. The training does get worse. Right? The discipline does get worse. And if you continue to refuse to confess your sin, to judge yourself, the Father is forced to discipline you harder than ever. And self-justification's no good. You can justify till the cows come home, it's absolutely no good. Uh, we can see it in the same passage, in 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 30. Now here, they've been taking the communion. To me, the communion is the most sacred of all the things that we do. I can't tell you the position that the communion service holds. It's very, very important. And here, they had been uh, just treating it as if it was normal service. And they'd been coming in, sometimes drunk, they couldn't care less, really, just coming along for a church meeting. Verse 27. <clears throat> Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. That's self-judgment. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Verse 29. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation, that's judgment, to himself, not discerning the body. Cross out the Lord's there. There's no Lord there. Not discerning the body. Verse 30. For this cause, i.e., because you haven't judged yourself, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And we stand in awe and fear of the Lord as we're talking about this. Many of them were weak, many of them were sick, and some had died. There is a sin which is mortal. And that sin is constantly refusing to face up to sin that God is pointing out in your life. There we are. And believe it or not, it's easy to over-spiritualize sin. It really is. But God's discipline will come and come and come until you face up to the sin. Now last time we saw that some believers... Most believers die when their jobs are finished. Amen. But there is this exception, and that's those who constantly live out of fellowship and refuse to get into fellowship. We, have got, we must face up to every sin. We've got to ask the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, to come into our hearts and convict us of every sin that we can think of, and every sin that we can't think of, so that we're clear. Now don't worry about this. Sickness isn't always discipline. Neither is death always discipline, obviously. But you know whether it is or not. Get before the Lord and ask him to search your heart. Look, this sin problem is an important one. We need to confess and get it clear. We must ask God about everything, what he thinks about everything. Because fellowship is so important. Right? There's not an area of your life, really, that this uh, 
shouldn't touch. And don't just think of the overt sins, the sick sins. Losing your temper, lying, they're easy. Uh, what about the hidden mental sins? Pride. How often do you confess pride in your life? Self-righteousness, criticism, maligning. These are the sins that God wants dealt with in your life. We've got to ask God to reveal it. We need his revelation as far as sin is concerned. And we must be harsh with ourselves as well. We've got to be harsh. The harsher we are, then the more secure that we are. Now this is a very, very, very important subject. Next week I'm going to continue this subject and we're going on to judgment of believers' works. I haven't finished yet. I'm going to see exactly how did the Corinthian church respond to what Paul had said. And then we'll go on to the uh, pivotal verse on discipline and chastisement and that's Hebrews chapter 12. This question of fellowship is vital. We must always be in fellowship. Through fellowship is joy, through fellowship is faith, through fellowship is love. Bitterness, criticism, harshness, unkindness are all signs of, an of a broken fellowship, of an unbroken heart and lack of confession. We need it desperately. May we seek after the holiness of the Lord and may God keep this fresh until we meet next time and continue there. Amen.